Thanks so much for joining us for a special Women's History Month edition of The Field from KAWC. I'm Lisa Sturgis. This week we sit down with a woman who's watched Yuma grow and taken an active role in its development. Iconic City Council person Emilia Shoup tells us how it was and how she still insists it should be. Then a conversation with Yuma Sector Border Patrol Chief Patricia McGurk-Daniel about the way women are suited to joining the Green family. And we also sit down with State Senator Sina Kerr to discuss achieving the balance between serving the state and running a dairy farm. Over the next hour, we'll also revisit some of our favorite Women's History Month conversations from our KAWC News Archive. I'm Lisa Sturgis. That's coming up on The Field. But first, news headlines. Funding for The Field comes from listeners just like you who support KAWC News. It's individual and community support that makes civil conversations, local analysis, and trusted news on this podcast possible. That's why we're counting on your charitable gift right now. It takes all of us to ensure the things we care about continue to thrive. So please take just a moment to donate to KAWC so we have the solid resources needed to keep this podcast going. Visit kawc.org slash donate to give today. And thanks. Thanks so much for joining us for our special Women's History Month edition of The Field from KAWC. I'm Lisa Sturgis. The entire U.S. now commemorates March as Women's History Month, but the celebration of the gender's contributions rose from humble beginnings. In 1978, the Education Task Force of Sonoma County designated the week of March 8th as Women's History Week. Members timed it to coincide with International Women's Day. Two years later, a consortium of women's groups and historians began to lobby for national recognition. And in February of 1980, President Jimmy Carter signed a proclamation declaring the week of March 8th National Women's History Week. In issuing the proclamation, President Carter wrote, quote, From the first settlers who came to our shores, from the first Indian families who befriended them, men and women have worked together to build this nation, end quote. The proclamation has become an annual presidential tradition, although in 1987, Congress decided to make it an entire month. Arizona has always been a place of promise, especially for those hoping to escape cold eastern winters. Such was the case for a very young Emilia Shoup. Ms. Emilia has served on the Yuma City Council for decades and has played an active civic role even outside politics. But once upon a time, she was just a young wife and mother making a cross-country trip towards a place she'd never seen in the Arizona desert. Was it like desert back then? There was nothing built south of 32nd Street. It was all citrus orchid. The Army had left, and the Marines were in the process of coming into Yuma. Kofa High School opened with the students from YPG in the military and uh, tuition-paid students from Mexico. In the 1980s, 
Kofa uh, was thriving very nicely as a high school. The uh, citrus trees back here behind Barnes & Noble started to go away. Citrus uh, moved to Japan and we lost our trees and we've got housing back there. And we got the dog track. And I forgot about the dog track. There was a dog track here. Yes, there was a dog track and all the celebrities in Hollywood came here to bet on the dogs. And being a Beta Sigma Phi member when I transferred out here, we got the privilege of being the hostesses for the dog track. For anybody that remembers, they shot the $6 million man here. Yes, they did. And they drove some of those uh, Shriner cars from the parade through the big glass window. <laughs> what have you. <laughs> Whole new world out here that I came out of a uh, state of Missouri uh, to no man's land at that point in time. Uh, quite a transition. So at what point did you decide to become civically active? I grew up in a family that uh, believed in community involvement and helping people. And when I came out here, the superintendent who hired my husband and hired all the teachers for Kofa High School, most of them came from Iowa and Michigan. We were the only Missourians that came to Kofa um, High School. The superintendent had all of the faculty wives to meet and he gave us our instructions. We did not smoke, we did not drink, we did not work, we stayed in the home and took care of our children. You can play bridge and I came home and told my husband better not unpack your bags yet. Um, your wife may have you in hot water very soon, like because I'm involved, I'm gonna be involved, I'm transferring as a Beta Sigma Phi. I'm going to be involved with the community. And the community found out that I had a brand new royal typewriter with black and red ribbon and carbon paper. And therefore I became a scribe for the, um, there's about 90 people that congregated to write stories for the pulp magazines. <clears throat> then uh, Mayor Ursel Bird heard about my typewriter and I happened to go with it. And he had business meetings that needed to be scribed of which I sat in on a lot of wheeling and dealing at that time was going on in Yuma by handshakes. This was not a usual place for a mother of two to be showing up, was it, at that time? What, 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 what year was it? Let's stop and think. When I graduated in high school in 1951, I was told my choices would be teacher, nurse, secretary, but I wanted to be involved with law and journalism. And they told me there was no place for a woman to do so. And I refused to be 
be overseeing rather than making my own decisions. And how has that worked out for you? <laughs> and uh, that's that's this is since this is women's history, but exactly. that was the way uh, women grew up in high school. Very few went to college, and you had your choice. You could be a stay-at-home mother, which I did, and a community volunteer, which I did uh, all through my years, and still am. So you worked for Mayor Bird. I didn't work for anybody. Okay. Oh, you didn't work, but you worked. I could not work because I was a faculty wife, and my instruction oh, so was volunteer. Yes, ma'am. Well, at what point did you decide that you were done volunteering and you wanted to run for office? In 1980, Mayor Ursel Bird, uh, there was a vacant, vacated seat on the council, and he appointed me to the council in 1980. And I finished out that year and ran for the seat and was elected. And I have, I'm working with my seventh mayor. Going back to Women's Month, okay. I keep taking you back to it. In 1980, when I was appointed to the seat, 1981, I was told I would be going to Washington, D.C. for the National League of Cities and Towns. I made the trip with another councilman to Washington, D.C. In those days, you wore your skirts and your heels and what have you. I was one of 5% of elected officials in the United States that was a woman. So take 1980 and move it forward today, and the women's movement has really moved women into elected offices. I was thinking about that. We have a we have a female governor. It's not she's not our first female governor. Is Arizona a good climate for women? Women can make it very nicely, but she needs to do her homework. You know, going my opinion for running for elected office is no different than applying for a job somewhere. You need to know what it entails, how much time it's going to take, how much involvement is going to be expected of you, as I am doing today, connected with being a city councilman. I meet with the media. I meet with groups. Uh, it's hard to be a speaker for groups now because you can't make an icebreaker that would not offend someone. It's been contentious. Very disappointed in all the electorate in the whether whatever party they are in Congress, they are not on the issue. They're not thinking about the people they represent. And to boycott the opportunity to be a public uh, involvement as they did down here, as they're doing around the country on the border issues. That is a nonpartisan issue when it comes down to affecting people's lives and their pocketbooks. And I get very perturbed at elected officials that run with the herd, and I call it the herd, 
to uh, ignore the reality of the problem. It's a complicated, it's a complicated problem. And you must feel some level. It's not complicated. It's just people get in the way of each other of, you and I should be talking about an issue. I don't care who you are, what your background is, or what have you. This is the problem. Together we're gonna to solve that problem. And that's my philosophy of work. Nationwide, it's more attitude is become what's in it for me. And if it's not in it for me, I couldn't care heck. If it helps you and it doesn't help me as elected official, then forget it. And I'm seeing that from all elected positions from the president down, that they're not focused on the, the problem that needs to be corrected. They're not stewards of the people's monies. And the word grants is a stickler on me. Grants are your pocketbook taxes that you've paid. And cities and towns and education all have to compete for those taxes to get them back to your locale. And they, got, they have criteria that goes with each grant. You do not have the latitude of moving it around to make it fit. And a lot of the grants require local match monies. And then if you get a grant, you do, you do not have, well, it's, grant is kind of like the old adage that we heard, if you don't spend it by the end of the year, you lose it. I was trained very well when I got into the political realm and I took it seriously and I still do. And I'm not a bellwether person that uh, quite often you see they are when they get elected. So there's got to be reason, and you got to have discussion if you disagree. And you disagree on the issue, not disagree on the people. Now, if there's, what would you say to? Uh, you know, a woman who's sitting at home and she's listening to our conversation and she's thinking, well, heck, you know what? I always really wanted to get out there and do something for my community, but I just don't know what or how or what would you recommend to them? There are many opportunities to start out as I did as a volunteer. Therefore, you set your hours and you make it convenient for your family. Get involved. I've never been involved in an organization that I have not held the role of president or chairman. That was always my goal. Whenever I start with an organization, I'm going to the top. And I work, work the process to do so. And then that's what grows you into the political room uh, realm by the uh, experience. In the meantime, I raised two boys that are very educated and very well, uh, doing quite well. 
Our sincere thanks to Yuma City Council member Emily Ashoop for her time. Yuma Sector has a new chief, and she's a woman. Rising through the ranks of Border Patrol is no small feat, especially when you consider fewer than 6% of Border Patrol agents are female. Our conversation on how Patricia McGurk-Daniel used that to her advantage still to come on this special Women's History Month edition of The Field. But first, through the years, KAWC has introduced listeners to some notable women here in Yuma. They weren't elected to public office or famous for anything, but their contributions to the community remain impressive nonetheless. In 2014, we met Nicole Griffin, a licensed architect and construction manager. Evidence of her impact on the community can be seen in the buildings that bear her mark from our local libraries to the hospital. A portion of our conversation with Griffin. It's exciting to be part of something where you're involved in the planning of it and the execution and you get to watch it be built and then you drive by and you see that. I mean, these buildings here at AWC, I was pregnant with my son when I was assisting the architect, Gold Evans, that actually designed these buildings and got them built. I was here the day Dr. Schoening broke ground on these buildings and now I get to come here and see them, you know, after I, I told you I taught here for four years. It's, it's just a great feeling of accomplishment and satisfaction that you contribute something to the community that's so important. Buildings are important and especially educational justice facilities, prisons, hospitals are important facilities. So anytime I think any of us can do anything where we're assisting in growing and meeting the needs of our community, what's not satisfying in that? It's just, I'm very proud to do what I do. I love what I do. I wake up every day. It's never boring. It's always interesting. You meet great, new, exciting people. You get to learn new things. Um, dealing with healthcare right now, I tell them all the time, the main thing that I've learned is anything that ends in skippy is bad, like endoscopy or colonoscopy because they're shoving something up you, in you, or down you. And, uh, you know, so it's different. It's fun. You get to learn something new. You meet interesting people. It, every day is different. I love mentoring people who want to go into architecture, engineering, and construction management, especially women. First thing I tell them is don't become an architect or an engineer. Go into construction management. The pay is way better. It's more fun and less stressful. Um, highly value my education as an architect. It was a great education. But definitely, if you're going to pursue something like that, uh, do it alongside of a double major, like business administration or something. Don't be myopic and just focus on one aspect. Look at the big picture. The more skill sets you have, the more marketable you are. A lot of times, architects will tend to uh, focus on one industry, like they'll focus on healthcare, or they'll focus on schools, or they'll focus on justice. Don't focus on any one thing. Be very broad in your experience because you're much more marketable that way, and you will have a much wider pool of experience and knowledge base when challenges arise to help you solve issues. Our community gives me hope. I mean, look at the fantastic things that our community has done in the last, I've lived here for 20 years now. I mean, our community has done amazing things. I, I commuted to LA for two years for work, as I said, and people always ask me, why do you wanna live there? You know, and they always said there so derogatorily. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, we have a 4% or less state income tax. I know everybody in the community, the sheriff's a friend, the city administrator, county administrator, you know, you name it, everybody in Yuma knows everybody. It's Cheerberry. It's where Cheers Bar meets Mayberry. And I love this community. I, you know, yes, we're getting more crime than we used to have, but people still respond to that. And we're still, I think, 
a small enough community that shows it really, really cares about its citizens and the winter visitors and the military and the agricultural migrant workers that are all here. So it's such a mix of so many different aspects that gives me hope that we stay that way, culturally diverse, economically diverse, and growing. This is The Field from KAWC. I'm Lisa Sturgis with a special Women's History Month edition. The beginning of the new year brought new leadership to the U.S. Border Patrol's Yuma sector. Chief Patricia McGurk-Daniel assumed the role of acting patrol chief following Chief Chris Clem's retirement. She recently assumed leadership of one of the busiest sectors in the country on a full-time basis. Margaret Daniel is not the first woman to lead Yuma's sector, but she does take the chief's office at one of the agency's most challenging times, and at a time when less than 6% of agents are female. We discuss the advantages women have in what may seem like a challenging position. Do you think that maybe being a woman might give you some advantage in navigating all those multiple roles because do you feel that as kind of as women we're kind of ingrained that we have to fill multiple roles i think that um i used to treat that as a disadvantage for many years and then as i started moving up in leadership i noticed that when i interacted with males instead of trying to change their perception about me as you become a leader as you become a manager, you really have to edit your managing styles to the person, and not necessarily the gender, in what motivates them and what helps them along. So throughout my career, I find uh, within the Border Patrol, because it's, it's such an unusual profession, not just in law enforcement, in law enforcement itself, there's very few of us, you know, to put it in perspective, you know, there's only about 20,000 Border Patrol agents for the entire country. Whereas New York City has about 43, 44,000 officers. So our family, our green family is very small and we go through a lot and we go through a lot at the academy. Um, and so we spend a lot of time together and we build these, we build these relationships together. And um, so when you, when you start to manage people, you manage them the way that they succeed. And as a female, we get that nurturing role or we have that familiar role. So I've been someone's sister, I've been someone's work wife. And now kind of as a chief or as the deputy of San Diego, when I came over, I kind of turned into mama bear. And so I take that, I take that relationship seriously and I'm not offended about the situation because I care so much about my people. So I will fight for their needs, I will fight to protect them and I will fight to nurture them to, towards their goals. So is this something that when you were younger that you thought, I really wanna be a border patrol agent or did you happen into it? To give us some, some insight into the genesis of becoming a border patrol sector chief. It's, it's a big bloody job. So actually, it's really random. Um, when I started, I, I actually left the, the home very early. I, I was on my own uh, right before I turned 17. And I kind of put myself through high school and college. I still had good grades. And 
you know, I kind of flounder not having that base, like that familiar base. And actually, I, I did not want to be in law enforcement. And um, I signed up in a time and space where I needed something to hold on to and not having that family base. And I didn't know that I was searching for some kind of stability and even some kind of code to live by. So I randomly kind of signed up and got into Border Patrol and very quickly, um, it was mass hiring in 1999. Within three months, I was in Charleston, South Carolina and I was the only female in my class and I was the only female at the academy for a bit. And um, I, had, I had had a strong martial arts background by that point. And so the physicality of it, um, the, the studying, everything, it, it gave me that structure that I was almost hungering for. And that also challenged me. Um, and also, I mean, it is Women's History Month, and I'm I'm not going to come here and say that everything was, you know, you know, roses and and everything. It was difficult. There there was a lot of gender bias and a lot of those things. But I think for females in this in this agency and males, well, um, it's not easy being green. It takes a special kind of personality for us. And so, when somebody tells us, "Hey, you can't do something," you prove them wrong. And so that kind of continued throughout my career. I, I went through the academy, I graduated, I stayed, I was, I was the only female. I ended up in Nogales, Arizona, which was one of the toughest areas to work in 1999. And I just continued to do that and I just had this call to do well. And um, you know, that just kind of continued this urge to see things that even at the academy that I didn't necessarily agree with. And the only way that you can affect change is by putting forward and volunteering to affect change. And so half of it for my career has been that drive to want to fix it because I'm here and I'm not leaving. And the other half of it is to prove the people wrong that told me that I couldn't do it because I do like it. So part of that is uh, for all the naysayers throughout my 23 years that doubted doubted me but I would say the majority is definitely because I just wanted to help out my green family it is very familial it just in the law enforcement I found in and so do you think that that sense of that collegiality that family environment is something that might make it more attractive to more women who are considering a law enforcement career? I think it definitely calls certain jobs in there. Now, when you're talking about ICE or you're talking even about our, our sister organization, which is um, Office of Field Operations, they have a lot more urban environments that you can get to that, um, and that, that has become a big debate and that's one of the questions here because female border patrol representation as uniform, uniformed really doesn't get above five, six percent. And it hasn't, and throughout the years, I've kind of ended up on these groups, these working groups on how do we increase, and we have initiatives to increase that workforce. But the reality of the situation is, is you come in at an early age, and then there's different variables that come into play for not just women, but men as well. That includes locations that have childcare, locations where your spouse can get a job, locations where your children could get a good education, um, good healthcare, all of those things factor. and. Uh, the fact of the matter is that most of Border Patrol is, is located in desolate areas and hardship areas that don't have that infrastructure to support the family. So we usually end up drawing into that kind of nuclear, traditional nuclear family mentality where, you know, 
um, the children are there with the wife and then, you know, that men might become an agent or female agents tend to marry other agents um, or first responders or educators or people that are in the medical field. And I think it's I think I think it is that family and it's it's a really first responder family. It's, and I think it's also maybe there's a service mentality that, that goes with it. Well, I think, you know, you have to look back in, on history, and that's that's some of the things that right now in this time and space, you know, morale is very challenging because agents feel, especially in the time of social media, and we can't look anywhere without it being on the news. I mean, you turn on any kind of news channel right now, you turn on the radio station, the border, the border, the border. Um, and it's interesting, I, you know, you're talking about different um, professions, but I don't know of any other profession that everybody seems to have an opinion on, but no one's ever done our job. So uh, that's, that's one of the things when we're talking about working on employee resiliency, and it's that resilience to step away from the position and, and just ignore people who constantly have an opinion on, on things they know nothing about. You know, we don't go to our dentist and tell him how to do a root, him or her how to do a root canal. Like, certainly, don't tell me how to do border security. Like, we know our job because we're trained to do our job. But I would say to that that the border patrol is is steeped in and ingrained in like really incredible history. And if you look back and see how the border patrol actually was created, the first customs um, the, um, act was done by President Washington in, in 1789 and then later on you had agricultural laws that were coming into place and then next you did have immigration laws um, so then back in 1918 you, you had the, the 18th amendment being passed and then all of that kind of culminated in starting in the Detroit sector and the El Paso sector with the northern smuggling of alcohol for prohibition and, you know, so you think back then, you know, we were really there to to intervene on that and to protect agriculture, which is a big deal here in Yuma, um, protecting our farmers, protecting our farmland. So what's interesting in, in the polarization right now is this: we talk about immigration and that is just a tiny bit of our job. So we were there for prohibition. We were there um, during World War II. We were there to integrate schools. Um, when integration became a thing. We were there for the LA riots. We were there for hurricanes. We were there for fires. Anyone along the northern or the southern border knows that Border Patrol agents are usually the first ones to respond to domestic disturbances, to DUIs, to any of those things. And we do all of that, yet we have been compartmentalized in this very tiny piece. But last week, I was noticing last week, I think agents made, what was it, 27 rescues? That's a lot for a week. Yes, it's a significant uh, amount, and that's going to continue to get higher as, as the volume increases. It's not just migrants. We rescue people who get lost. We, get, we rescue hikers. We um, do life-saving you know, life um, uh, events for, for people who are in motor vehicle accidents. You name it, we're there. We have those EMTs. We have our specially trained board star. We have our paramedics. We have our, search and, we have our dogs that can do all that. But I guess what I was getting to in the end, we're coming up on our 100 year anniversary. In 2024, Border Patrol will be around for 100 years. So I think I tell my agents now and people who want to come in, you're part of history because there's so few of us and there's been so few of us. If you can get through the academy, you can make it and you can make this a profession. You are part of a very elite few and you kick butt. And 
you know, um, whatever political stuff happens, it happens. And, and we're here to do what we do and we support each other. But at the end of the day, we get home to our families and um, we take care of each other. That was Yuma Sector Border Patrol Chief Patricia McGurk-Daniel. Prior to coming to Yuma, the chief was a deputy chief in San Diego. We thank Chief McGurk for her perspective. There's no place quite like Arizona's rural communities. They are places where practicality rules and hard work pays off, apparently for men and women alike. Senator Sina Kerr says it works that way when it comes to state politics as well. Our discussion on that topic coming up on the field. But first, an encore of KAWC's conversation with another of Yuma's notable women. Annette Elias was an English teacher at San Luis High School and a devout Christian. We met her back in 2013 when she told us about a unique classroom experience that showed her the impact she could have on her students. My students were presenting on a, on a book we had read and they were talking about the personal connection they had made with the book. And it opened up the opportunity for one of my students to talk about the, the violence he had experienced at home with, with one of his parents and how he was able to connect to one of the main characters of the story. And the student, this had happened years ago and he, he and his parents were able to mend the situation and that's a problem of the past. They now, him and his dad now have a very good relationship and he was using this experience of his to teach to the other students about forgiveness, about mending relationships with your parents and forgiving and how once you forgive, you just unchain yourself and really experience freedom. him being up there presenting and I could see the faces, the eyes of my students making that connection as well with the character of the story, the importance of forgiven, forgiving and the particular character we were talking about he had not forgiven in the story and we learned the message of the struggles he had to go through because he hadn't forgotten and I knew that my students had gotten the message and it was a classroom of almost 50 students and if you are able to send the message to, to 50 students that forgiveness is important, then that was just amazing. It was an amazing moment in the classroom.
Thanks so much for listening to our special Women's History Month edition of The Field. I'm Lisa Sturgis. Senator Sinekur is a daughter of rural Arizona. Raised in Buckeye, she, her husband, and now her son run a large dairy farm while Kerr serves on some of the legislature's most important committees. Elected in 2018, the senator joins a sorority of women in Arizona politics that dates back decades. We discuss the environment that has allowed so many women here to reach atypical roles so long before those in the rest of the nation. So it's Women's History Month. And so I wanted to chat with you in particular because you kind of are like a modern, what I would consider, I'm old, but I would consider like a modern day woman. You're like, you're dairy farmer, you're state lawmaker, you sit on some extremely important uh, committees, including uh, natural resources, and then you also sit on the committee that's responsible for signing off on the governor's choices for some really important you know as life goes you know it it happens gradually for some of us and that's really how it happened for me uh, of course i was able to fulfill a, a a dream that i had as a young girl to marry a farmer and uh been married to my husband bill for 43 years now and he was a third generation dairy farmer so now our uh, our son we have a son and three daughters our son now as, as our uh, fourth generation and so that's what we've been doing for the last 43 years but really on the political side uh, you know that's really what led me to um, even considering running for office uh, as you know you know being there in Yuma our, our food can is very political and so just in advocating for the dairy industry and farming in general, you know, I just started seeing that we needed more farmers, more actual producers on the other side of that desk, making these uh, critical uh, decisions for our industry. And so now I'm in my sixth session here in the state Senate, and I was elected majority whip by my caucus. And so that's a huge honor. Uh, to serve in that leadership role. I was able to maintain my chairmanship of Natural Resources, Energy, and Water, which um, I absolutely love. Such a critical time for uh, all those issues in um, whether it's water and ag or, you know, energy issues, all of our natural resources, you know, encompassing uh, forestry, mining, all those things. So absolutely love, love that committee. You know, in speaking to our um, local farmers here in Yuma, in the past, they have expressed some sense of being kind of ignored by by the capital because it's so much governed by Maricopa Concerns, because it's obviously the state's most populous county. However, I'm, you know, there's increased representation of the rural counties. I see you as part of the voice of rural Arizona in the state legislature. Yes, absolutely. And, and that's what I enjoy so much and, and why I love uh, being able to represent part of Yuma and then part of Maricopa County that I represent is Western Maricopa County. So still considered very rural, uh, although Buckeye is growing quite rapidly, but, you know, we still have that strong farming community as well. And so we do have an opportunity. We have 
uh, the rural caucus that Representative Dunn is the chair of meets every Tuesday over in the house during lunch, and we just talk about rural issues, and we bring in all the members uh, that are uh, from the rural areas and some that aren't. They just want to learn more about rural issues, and so we keep those issues at the forefront. We're very vocal. You know, we run bills that uh, help our rural areas, and and so we do um, want to keep it at the forefront and make sure that our colleagues understand that, you know, there is a difference in our rural areas. Our needs are different. Our um, challenges are different. And so we are a very strong voice for that. Let's talk, let's touch on water for a moment. There really is only so much the state can do with water because it's a federal issue. And then again, you know, Colorado River water is governed by um, the compact, which seems to be standing the test of time a hundred years in. But there are things that can be done with conservation. I was speaking with Representative Dunn just last week, um, and he was, and and uh, you, like him, share a unique perspective. You know, you recognize the urban area's need for growth. At the same time, you understand how it important it is to preserve rural water rights. Do you think that we can strike a happy medium? You know, I I believe that we can. Um, And I think now more than ever, um, those rights um, are are so uh, solid. And I'm grateful for that. Those those compacts, um, those those agreements, all all the things that you know came into uh, providing our right, our uh, water rights structure, um, the present perfected rights, all those and the different uh, uh, priorities. And I see now more than ever, you know, people are understanding and they're going, okay, you know, there's a, there's a, an order here and uh, very well respected. So, uh, you know, I, I believe that we can. We continue, of course, to always uh, ensure that our colleagues, you know, and I know that I do, I I work um, to make sure I'm helping to educate my colleagues on why water for agriculture is so critical. And I I love that, you know, there's a, a tour that goes down at the beginning of each term that takes the new legislators, you know, go through Western Maricopa County, visit some different ag, um, uh, areas and then they go to Yuma and they learn so much and I love hearing the members come back and talk about did you know you know that Yuma did, you know, provides, represent, you know representative, representative Carbone was telling me about that when I talked to him he was like he thought that was like the coolest thing it, it um, is it's so fascinating for them <laughs> and so I love that mm-hmm. well let's circle back to like women's history month you've been here since you were three so you grew up here and now yeah. you're mm-hmm. a and you grew up in a more of a rural environment did you find it challenging to achieve the things you wanted to achieve in Arizona and did you find it to be a supportive environment for me it was very supportive um I think you know I was one of seven growing up and uh, we my parents were equal opportunity type of parents you know there was really no distinction everybody pitched in that's just how we got through uh life with such a large family when Bill and I 
were married and, you know, and here I find myself, you know, a partner with him as we began our dairy herd and, and I milked cows with him in the milk barn uh, for quite a number of years. Uh, he taught me to disc fields. I loved raking hay. I raised heifers. And, you know, I was just a part of everything uh, that he did. And then we've always, you know, just worked side by side, literally, uh, in our office as we, you know, grew our business and, and conducted our business. And so when we had our son and three daughters, uh, same type of thing applied to them. We were equal opportunity parents. Those girls had to do everything that our son had to do. And uh, so I found it uh, a good environment, especially in agriculture, where, you know, it it can tend to be, you know, lend itself more, um, it's, uh, more of a man's world, so to speak. But I never felt um, excluded. Uh, I was always, you know, just part of our farming operation and always felt included. So it never occurred to me that there should be, you know, that there should be or would be any type of uh, different treatment of me just because I was a woman. And, um, and so, you know, again, running for office, actually, Arizona is one of the top states for um, offices. Elected it is. Offices it is in both parties, yes. like for yes. going very far back. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we gave um, the women the right to vote in Arizona even before uh, uh you know, the, the U.S. Uh, ratified that. So, um, you know, we were early adopters and recognizers of that pioneering spirit, that independence that we have here uh, in the West and in Arizona in particular. And, you know, women have just always been part of our political uh, landscape. And so I looked up a couple statistics uh, to share. And, you know, we're fifth in the U.S. For women uh, that who hold elected office, we have um, the fifth female governor, which is the most of any state. And and I'm just really proud that you know it's it's not even so much based on gender. It's just recognizing you know the that women can do whatever they want and and achieve here, and that um, I've never really felt any barriers myself. That was Republican State Senator Sina Kerr, who serves eastern Yuma County. We thank Senator Kerr so much for her time. This show has special meaning for me, not just because I'm a woman. It will air on what would have been my late grandmother's 105th birthday. Her name was Thelma, although everyone called her Billy. She was a single working mother at a time when it was the last thing any woman wanted to be, and she was, even more shocking, a jazz musician. She was a little tiny woman with a great big stand-up bass who got her big break in radio in the 1940s on the National Barn Dance on Chicago's WLS radio. The show would eventually be carried nationwide by NBC, but Billy would step away when my mother arrived. That didn't stop her from living life out loud and broadcasting laughter, positive energy, and sometimes inappropriate jokes. She spoke her mind, worked her will, and made things happen. She taught me to pursue my dreams, labor for what you love, 
and to never let anyone tell you no. And that solid preparation and a fabulous status bag will never steer you wrong. So I ask you to join me in remembering that special woman that inspired or still inspires you. Maybe give her a call and say thanks, if you still can. Field is a production of KAWC Colorado River Public Media. You can send your questions, comments, or suggestions to news at kawc.org. Our theme music was composed by Steve Hennig and performed by members of the Yuma Jazz Company. For more information, visit yumajazz.com. Thank you so much for listening to The Field from KAWC. Remember, you can always hear the show at kawc.org, on the KAWC app, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Lisa Sturgis. This will be my final show, but I sincerely encourage you to keep yourself informed, and I thank you so much for listening. <music>